Welcome, everybody, to episode three of the Interventional Endoscopist. I'm your host, Juan Carlos Suchthave. Uh, today's topic, I'm going to talk about something very interesting and near and dear to me. It's about starting a fellowship. Not actually a general GI fellowship, but an interventional endoscopy fellowship. We started one in our group about 2016, and I'd like to share the process on that and the benefits and kind of just discuss that a little bit for anybody who might be interested in starting a fourth-year therapeutic endoscopy fellowship in a private practice setting. Um, so first of all, as most people who are listening to this podcast know, interventional endoscopy is a rapidly growing field. Um, initially, uh, fourth-year fellowships were started to train people in EUS and to better train them in ERCP. And I s suspect the first fellowship started somewhere in the early 2000s. And I know that one of the original programs was in Toronto, Canada, and certainly in South Carolina with Dr. Peter Cotton, there was a program as well. Over the last 10 years, there's been a rapid growth in the number of fellowship programs. And I believe that at present, there's about 75 to 80 programs around the United States, not to mention programs in Canada, India, and other countries. Um, we looked at this as a way to stay connected with the academic world. My partner and I, uh, Dr. Ananya Das and I decided in about 2000. 14 or 15 that we had had a good amount of volume for EUS and ERCP and we both came from academic backgrounds and uh, had a desire to continue teaching and we looked at that as a way to stay connected to that world. We also looked at how could a fellowship program benefit our practice and we certainly looked at that as well and, and found a way that everybody could win. Um, Fellowship programs uh, for interventional endoscopy in the United States are not ACGME certified, so the process to getting one started and approved, etc., is completely different than what you would see for an ACGME approved fellowship. And it's um, a little bit easier, in my opinion. It doesn't require as much paperwork, and there's not a lot of regulatory boards for this. One of the reasons it's non-ACGME certified is because there is no board examination or uh, testing to get licensed per se in interventional endoscopy. Our program, I believe, has been very successful. Um, there are a few skeptics out there, specifically in the academic centers, because we are not affiliated with um, an academic uh, facility. And there's some benefits of that, and there are some, um, you know, downsides and some things that we could improve. Um, as I mentioned, we started our program in 2016, and we went out of the match. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the ASGE, or American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, uh, hosts an interventional endoscopy match. And the way that works is fellow applicants who are interested would uh, register and pay whatever fees are needed. And programs like mine, initially we just had to sign up and pay the $200 fee to participate. 
And over the last few years, there's been a push to standardize and to make the programs a little bit more on the up and up. And what I mean by that is some programs would say that they would offer a volume of X of Y procedure. And when a fellow applicant would go there and, and participate or match there, then he or she would realize that sometimes the numbers were overstated and um, that obviously leads to some dissatisfaction. So the ASG in an attempt to make people a little bit more honest in terms of what they offer, they ask programs to submit data now about what their actual volumes are. And they do do uh, uh, questionnaires or surveys of fellows after they graduate that, you know, did you get the number that you were promised, et cetera. So uh, it's it's a really good attempt at the ASGE's perspective to kind of, you know, make this some more of a, you know, kosher program, if you will, or a kosher system. Um, one of the things with the uh, match is that everybody who signs up for it uh, is basically in good faith seeing that they're going to participate. Now, some programs do offer out of the out of match spots, and when they do that, it kind of messes up the other ones who are in the match, but it's few and far between, and it hasn't been a major problem. Uh, they are collecting data on all this, and um, we it'd be interesting to see what that shows. So in 2016, we went out of the match. We um, hired our first fellow. Um, it was late in the cycle. Usually the match concludes by about June or July. We had decided to start the program in October or November um, well, actually, we decided in October with this start date in January of 16. So October 15 is when we made that decision. Um, so from how we structure it, you know, this is, I think, something that's a little bit of a bone contention with some of the academic centers, um, which is fine. You know, we each do it in our own way, but we basically have our fellows do one week of outpatient and one week of inpatient. As you know from my second podcast where I discuss endoscopic ultrasound at the ambulatory surgical center, we have a large volume of procedures that are done there. And so we have our outpatient rotation where a fellow will go to the center and they'll do those procedures with us. We usually set them for 45 minute blocks, sometimes a little bit longer, or what we might do is schedule less of them in, in the first couple of months of their training. And as they get more uh, fluid with the procedure and more competent to then we keep them at a 45 minute block. Um, ideally we like to keep our procedures at 30 minutes blocks, but this is one of the sacrifices that we make in order to make sure that the fellow gets adequate training, but also to make sure that we're not hurting the business interests of the center. Um, when they're done with that, uh, they go to our hospital where we provide services to help over there. Um, their first priority when they get to the hospital is to do any outpatient or inpatient EUSs or ERCPs or any other therapeutic procedures that might you know, happen that day. And their second priority, or if there's low volume, is to assist the team that is surrounding on patients because we have a census that goes anywhere from 20 to 35, depending on the time of the year. And then if anyone's familiar with Arizona, uh, the winter months are extremely busy here because we have fantastic weather and we have... Uh, people from places where the weather is not fantastic uh, come down here and live here. So our hospitals get overflown, uh, overstuffed with the uh, patients from all over the country. 
And so um, when that census is high, you know, any extra hands on deck help the the team. So as mentioned, you know, the fellow will help there, but their first priority again is therapeutic procedures. The next week is their inpatient week where they are the attending of record or on service for the general GI service, but they also get to do all the inpatient and outpatient EUS and ERCPs, et cetera, that happen in the hospital. So it's, you know, with that, we have a fairly good volume. Our current fellow is on, um, on track to graduate with 400 ERCPs and 370 endoscopic ultrasounds with a 30% FNA rate. One of the things that I think is really, really helpful in our program is because we are not a tertiary care center, in other words, we're not getting referrals from around the state for second opinion on ERCPs, is we have a high data papilla rate. So um, our fellows get almost 50 to 60% of their procedures are made of papilla. During the pandemic, we had a situation where our procedures were low volume. Um, we, you know, we had obviously as many of you around the country noticed the total number of procedures was less. So a few of our fellows at that during that time frame finished with about 220 to 240 ERCPs. And obviously you're very concerned when you're sending somebody out into the community to do these procedures. But what gave me comfort was that they had a 50% uh, data papilla rate. So if I take a 250 EUS, uh, or sorry, ERCP procedure volume, and they're doing 125, 125 uh, data papilla, I'm very comfortable with that because there are programs around the country where they do offer three to 400 ERCPs, but they only have an 18 to 20% native papilla rate. So in my personal opinion, in my humble opinion, yeah, I think you're better trained when you're doing more uh, native papilla than when you're doing sphincters that have already been cut. Um, the one thing that we don't offer is we don't offer uh, training in advanced tissue resection uh, because we're currently in the process of developing that program in our practice. Um, we allow our fellow to participate in every procedure from day one. W one of the things that I learned from other programs, which is really useful when you have predictable volumes uh, of s certain procedures like ESD and EMR, et cetera, is to do a staggered approach where the first month they might do just diagnostic EUS and ERCP. The second month they may be allowed to do an FNA. The third month they might be allowed to do fiducial placement or, or, or something along those lines. But with our program, we have a lot of volume, but for some of the specialty things such as a necrosectomy or an axios placement, I can't really predict accurately when those are going to come. And most, most places can't. So I just we just bite the bullet and we allow the fellow to participate in anything and everything that they can. Um, another thing that we try to do is give as much time as possible, uh, especially on the ERCPs. Uh, we don't have a six minute rule or a 10 minute rule or a five touch rule, et cetera. We basically give the fellow, you know, it's variable amongst the five faculty, but it's anywhere from 10 to 25 minutes um, and let them try to get in. Um, obviously, it makes it a little bit more challenging for us if they can't get in after 15 or 20 minutes. And, um, you know, we are always paying attention to how the patient's doing and, and do our best to kind of minim minimize the risk. But also, we want to keep the fellow engaged so that they're training, so that they're learning. Um, 
the experience has been really good. I think we've been very blessed and very lucky to have fellows that were all excellent. Um, some of them came in with, uh, you know, 25 or 30 ERCPs underneath their belt. Some came in with 150. Um, you know, when we go through the interview process, a lot of fellow applicants like to advertise how many procedures they've done during their general GI fellowship. That's a nice thing to know, but I tell all of them that it doesn't make any effect or it doesn't affect our decision of who we rank and whatnot. I sometimes think if you come in with 150 to 200 ERCPs under your belt, you might have bad habits. And so, um, you know, sometimes it's harder to unteach those and it's easier to mold somebody from the beginning. But I think, you know, it's, it's just a good thing to know that, you know, fellows have had the experience when they come in, but it, it doesn't affect anything. Um, some of the challenges, you know, being in a private practice setting, uh, we, we don't do as well on the research aspect as I would like. Initially, when we started the program, I really wanted every fellow to submit at least one video presentation to Video GIE or an abstract to DDW, et cetera. And over the years, specifically since the pandemic time, we have actually become very lax on that. And it's not something I'm proud of, but it's something that we really are going to try to improve as we move forward in this process. The other thing that I think we could be better at is tumor boards and um, those type of presentations because when you are in an academic setting, you have those surgeons who are vested, you know, with you that are around and the oncologists and you're all kind of part of one team. Well, in the private world, as we all know that, you know, there's several groups in the hospital of each subspecialty. And so getting tumor boards together is not as simple as it might be in, in a institution where everybody's aligned. And so I, I, really would like to improve that for our program because I do see a lot of value in discussing cases with our subspecialty colleagues before we you know do different procedures or whatnot. Um, the other uh, kind of challenge has been legitimacy. You know, when you are not an academic institute, people kind of look at your program and say, well, that's just a private practice. And, that, and that's fine. And that's their opinion. And everyone's entitled to it. Um, and I, you know, we always hear through whoever matched with us how, what the cadence uh, was like in the room when people were waiting to have their interviews done. And this is what we were doing face-to-face. -face. And um, one of the feedbacks that came back to our group over and over again was that because we do have an inpatient rotation where the fellows are every other week and the general GI volume is high, um, there are people who are concerned about that. You know, one of the comments made by somebody who I knew well to another person was that he had already done a general GI fellowship and he didn't feel like there was a need for him to do a lot of procedures in the general world. But the counterpoint to that and, and the argument to that is that when you, and I hate this term, but when you leave fellowship for the real world, and, and I, this has been a pet peeve of mine uh, when I was a resident, people would tell me that, you know, when you go into the real world, and I was like, you know, we're not living in a, a dreamland here. But anyway, I, I digress. Um, <clears throat> when, you, uh, when you go out into real practice or private practice or, you know, hospital practice, you don't have a cap. So when you're a fellow, 
you have ACGME mandated workload caps and restrictions. Yeah, you can only see X number of patients a day. Every fellow can only be responsible for Y. You know, so when you get into the community and do your own thing, you could be seeing ten patients a day in the hospital. Or you could be seeing twenty-five or forty, even. You know, I've I've heard all variations through different friends and colleagues who are in private practice, and certainly in the academic world, you know. If you're an attending on the service, your fellows will have caps. But if there's more patients in your hospital, you're responsible for that. So I feel like, you know, being in an environment where you are in charge of everything, but you know that you have somebody to back you up if you need help, makes you a more efficient um, endoscopist and more efficient gastroenterologist. One of our former fellows shared a story with me where because our program was so busy, that when he went into practice in Chicago in the suburbs, he and his uh, counterpart, who were both hired at the same time, were given similar censuses at two hospitals. Uh, his colleague, who had not been used to that volume, was starting on Saturday week, you know, or weekend call at 7 a.m. and getting home around 9 p.m. And that's a common story for those who are in private. Well, our fellow was able to start at 7 and get done at 2 most Saturdays because he was accustomed to the high workload in our program. But again, I mean, that's just kind of what our circumstance is. And so that just comes with the territory. So obviously it's not for everyone. And the beauty of this is that there is a matching system. And if you don't like it, you don't rank us, which happens, you know. Um, I think um, I would like to see a situation where we are able to be purely therapeutic. But again, we're training the person for a, a, um, a lifestyle in private practice. One of the key points I make to applicants when I interview them is that my program or our program is not designed to create the next Todd Barron or Doug Adler, et cetera. We're not trying to get you into, if you're, if you're coming to our program because you want to be a professor of gastroenterology at Yale or Hopkins or something like that, probably, it's not the right place. But if you want to be a well-rounded therapeutic endoscopist who will be doing private practice type procedures and who will be cutting edge and be able to support a private practice, this is the exact program for you. We teach the business of it. We teach the, you know, workflow and we have a focus with a private mind and setting or a private setting in mind. So, um, you know, that, that's kind of what, you know, one of the things I counsel people on is that know what you want with your future. You know, and you may not know, and that's okay. But if you know what you want to do, make sure that that program, whether it's ours or somebody else, um, prepares you for a life in the, in uh, whatever field you want to go into. So don't go to a super high-powered basic science researching program if you would just want to be a clinical endoscopist and vice versa. Um, some other considerations is how are you going to fund it? So we fund it through our practice. And when the fellow is working as a general uh, attending uh, those uh, facility, excuse me, not facility, but those professional fees that they generate help pay for their salary. Uh, a couple other things that I advise, you know, because we're not ACGME certified, you have a lot of flexibility. So when a fellow has signs or symptoms of burnout, you have that flexibility as a program director to give them an extra day or two off just to, you know, have a mental health day, so to speak. Also, um, it's important that if you start a program that you work well with industry colleagues or partners. 
I can tell you that every industry uh, rep that comes to our hospital has been more than willing to uh, help us with fellow training and uh, help us with getting our fellows uh, into courses and things like that. So for example, um, I generally don't like to point out companies, but Boston Scientific is one that holds a fellows passport program. And um, they've been key in getting our fellow involved in the program and then sent to these courses. Uh, Cook, for example, does VISTA courses and they're always open to sending the fellow uh, there when they're available. And all the other um, providers, um, when they sponsor a course that's geared towards fellows, I make sure that I, you know, try to get my fellow in and make noise so that they can get in because, you know, we can offer day-to-day -day training, but getting them exposed to newer techniques and new technologies is a part of that training program. And, and I think, um, you know, industry plays a big role in helping to get them trained. Uh, Finally, I think it's it's been a beneficial uh, to our practice, you know, because fellows work hard, and as all of us do, and, you know, when they work hard for your practice, your practice looks better. So I think, you know, you know we, we've not had any fellow that's made us look bad, and so that's always been a nice thing. Um, another perk is being in the private world, you know, uh, if you like your fellow a lot and you have a position open, then you can hire. And we, you know, out of our 10 fellows that we trained since 2016, we've hired three of them. Um, and, and I think, you know, if you're growing your practice, it's a great way to take somebody for a test run, if you will. You know, I, I don't mean that in a crude manner. I just try to say that you're able to see how somebody works and what their work ethic is before you offer them a job. And I think many academic centers use their fellowship programs as a way to recruit future junior faculty. So I think it's a, it's a wonderful, um, wonderful opportunity for us to look at who our next generation of endoscopists is going to be. Um, so in summary, I think, you know, starting a program was not super challenging. You know, we just had to make sure that the practice was willing to fund the salary, which happened. Uh, we had to make sure we had the volume, which we fight hard to maintain by doing, you know, procedures at the best of our ability and trying to be communicative with our uh, referring doctors and trying to be available for them. And, you know, if, if you do that, then your volume stays stable. Um, and when we had those two things, we were able to make it happen. Hospitals were willing to support in the sense that they would get our fellows um, uh, credential for one year and uh, go, you know, be able to help us uh, train them. Um, you do also want to make sure that you have uh, the ability to offer that volume, no matter what it is. You know, you, you want to make sure that the EUS volume and the ERCP volume will at least touch the minimum so that they won't have any issues getting credentialed moving forward. Um, pandemic did mess that up for two of our fellows, but fortunately it wasn't an issue and they've been doing well in their jobs. And um, that that's about it. I mean, any questions or comments, please put them down below. Um, you know, hopefully you enjoyed this podcast and I've always wanted to talk more about this um, through direct message or email or whatever uh, method you'd like. Um, 
in terms of a therapeutic fellowship, ASG has been very helpful in running the match. And now with the uh, new society fight uh, foundation for interventional therapeutic endoscopy, they're going to be taking uh, a stab at uh, helping with maintaining and, and creating credentialing, um, strategies for interventional endoscopy as well. So this is something to keep an eye on of how the field develops going from a non ACGME certified and non, uh, you know, boarded uh, subspecialty to how do you get, you know, a credential or a decree or a diploma. So that's something that is coming down the pipelines and something to keep an eye on. Um, and finally, as I say in all my, um, podcasts, if you're suffering from any burnout issues or mental uh, health issues, your medical boards generally are not supportive, but your physician colleagues are. Feel free to reach out to anybody you're close to if you're struggling. And uh, thank you so much, and I'll see you next podcast.